Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hayden, welcome to the podcast, man. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'm very good, man. Very good. I'm pleased to be with you here in Sydney. You've made the commute into town. Yeah, I have. I'm sure you're glad to be avoiding these this Melbourne storm I keep hearing about. Yeah, but I think you guys had it. So, um, you guys had a bit of flooding or at least- I feel like this whole year is just a big flood, <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah, it seems a bit like that. Um, yeah, no, my, uh, my, my kinsmen in Melbourne are, are struggling a little bit with that, but- um, it's lovely to be here, mate. It's lovely to be recording in Sydney. It's lovely to be recording in person. You're just saying basically all the team is remote at Pearl. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, we made our first hire, I think, in March 2020. So, like kind of right at the height of COVID. Um, his name was Joe. Um, we did like two days in a co-working space together and then just straight home. Um, right. And just kept kind of hiring remote after that because we have a few people in Melbourne, a um, couple of people in Southeast Asia, uh, most people in Sydney, but they're kind of all over the place around Sydney as well. Mm. We'll get to uh, basically how you think about building a team and stuff in a minute. Maybe we can start with some icebreaker questions. Is What's one thing you have learned about investing in the past year? Uh, probably, I guess it's like an old concept that just really hit me, which was just how, how much leverage affects everything, you know, because you hear a lot of people talk about oh, how great equities are in how they outperform housing and stuff. But just this kind of problem that there's no cheap um, leverage with equities, right? Like yeah. if I could get a 3% loan for equities, it wouldn't even be a conversation. Um, that's just been on my mind a whole ton in mm. the conversation. And I'm like, I don't really want to buy a house at the moment, but it's some cheap debt, you mm. know? Um, so that that comes up a lot when I think about investing because I, I do invest, but I'm not in any debt at the moment. Mm. And I'm like, okay, yeah, equities are probably performing well, but, you know, someone who's like 5X leverage on a house is probably on average going to be in a better position just because of that. That's probably the main thing. Yeah, exposure. Absolutely. Um, I, I frame this next question, this icebreaker, as who's the greatest software engineer in Australia? But it could be just like some an engineer that you've looked up to or worked with or learnt from or anything like that or a founder even that you ad- admire? Yeah, um, there's, I mean, there's so many talented people that are peers of mine that I've known. Like the software engineers I've met are some of the most intelligent people. They like blow my mind, right? Mm. Um, 
they make me feel stupid. A lot of them, my friends that go end up working at Google or, or something else, you know, they'll like hack in. There was the one student I knew who like hacked into an Apple email and then just got poached by Apple or something. But um, one I became really aware of was there was this guy called Ken Robinson who used to work um, at the university I went to and, and teach at um, called yeah Ken Robinson. And he, um, it's crazy when you like read their like history, you know, because it was like an obituary because they just passed and you see, um, you know, they're like, they... They were the first, they, they like started the school of computer science kind of out of electrical engineering. They like prepared the first programs and they were like there when the first computers came to Australia. Um, and I know him just because he was talked about, Yeah, you know, um, and it definitely has motivated me in the last few months to try and try and pay a bit more attention to like the history of software engineering and computer science, because there's a lot of cool stuff now, but you know, um, like in any industry, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Yeah. Um, so I'd love to learn more about people like him yeah for sure um let's focus a bit on your background like if i'm not mistaken mate you're, you're quite young yep i'm 29 at the moment 29 yeah, so enjoying the last years the last moments of my 20s <laughs> it changes when you get to 30 don't worry about that um and mainly it's upstairs where you, you start thinking things um so um where did you go to school where did you study was science computer science part of that yeah, um, I grew up in, in Ballina, up on the Northern Rivers in New oh, South yeah. Wales. Um, went to school, went to a Catholic school there, uh, primary school and high school. I wasn't interested. I didn't think, you don't think about university much there. Like most of my friends didn't go to university. It's not really a topic until like year 12, mm. if that. Um, I kind of thought engineering was cool. You mm. know, like anyone who's like, wow, plane, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That seems magnificent. Um but just towards the end of high school, I think I got interested in software just because, you know, you're a young kid, you have the internet, you play around with stuff and you're like, oh, that, if I could study that and learn more about it, that sounds good. So, I came to Sydney, um, you know, when I was 18 um, to study at UNSW here in the East, uh, just software engineering. I did a computer science degree with honors uh, and that was, that was most of my time at uni. So, like I'm a software engineer by trade, essentially, like I did years of programming, been programming for like, you know, 10, 12 years or something like that. Um, mm. and I haven't left Sydney since yet. So I've been here for nearly half my kind of, you know, mm. the life I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you, so the one thing that I'm super envious of with people like yourself is that you can build things from your bedroom, from your garage. Like you don't need tools. You just need your computer. Right. And you have an idea and you can test it. It's agile. Did you, I'm imagining the answer is yes. Before Perla, like going back to when you started learning how to program and whatever, did you work on things and build things? Um, and if you did, like what are those, what are those some of the things that you use to train yourself and learn? It, yeah, um, build things all the time. Um, mm. I mean, that's it's a privilege to be in that industry, right? Like I've worked a lot with electrical engineers, mechanical engineers as well, and it's very different for them because everything's a compromise. You know, say you want to manufacture something, you have to go and Mm. pay for it or you have to you know convince someone to machine it for you or build it or order something and software is this kind of it's the good and bad part about software um you can just do anything most of the time right like you're not really inhibited um i mean what originally got me into software was uh i used to play video games as i was a kid i managed to stop that and <laughs> that's helped my how i spent my life quite a bit um but there was this guy i knew from a website in Melbourne where they used to mod gaming consoles hmm. um, so that you could play like backups yep. of things, right? And um, he was like, oh, I've got this problem every day. Like um, 
I collect credit card information and like half of the credit card gets sent to my email and the other half gets stored in a database. And he's like, I kind of have to go and copy and paste things in every day. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I just like kind of started learning how to program and I'd try to write these little scripts for him that would do stuff and it would like combine it together. Um, and I remember it saved him about half an hour a day, which kind of blew my mind at the time because, you know, you like stack that up. Someone with kids, you're like, well, that's 200 days a year. It's like, mm. you know, four days of his life every yeah. year that he gets to spend with family. That's like the earliest memory I have of building something and being like, that was cool, you know, like mm. and the impact you can have just from expressing yourself with software essentially. Um, but like since then, it was always like, you know, but like little find a word things or, or games at school or, um, you know, uni little side projects to scrape the weather because, you, you know, just random stuff that didn't mean a lot um, just in my personal time, like outside of uni or other projects. Mm. So, when you left uni, did you have to fill in the blanks from here? Yeah, when you sure. left uni, did you go into a professional career as a software engineer? Uh, no, I was too lazy, I think, deep down. Um, <laughs> I, did, I did interned at uni. I went to Microsoft for three months. I worked at Dolby in Sydney for three months. Um, but I kind of got to the end of uni and I was, frankly, I, I just was probably not in the best place. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can get up every day and <laughs> drag myself on the train. <laughs> so I was like, what can I do instead? So I, I went and started a company with some friends um, called Compare Meals. And we were essentially trying to tap into that massive rush of, you know, HelloFresh, Marley Spoon, My Muscle Chef. Um, it was like 400% growth in these meal kits and um, meal delivery services. And we were just like, there's no um, like I select or finder for them. Mm -hmm. So we were just like, we'll just build a website and we'll scrape a bunch of data, put it up, help people figure out what they want. And then we'll just sell the, sell the space to the, the companies and we'll sell it like whatever half, half or whatever Google charges for ads and um, that went okay. We actually, we just ran out of money and got fatigued. It was kind of a lesson in doing too much in a startup and not having enough capital. Um, cause then you just got a burden to maintain and like no capacity to grow. Um, so that ended up kind of like fizzling out, but that was what the main thing I did between finishing uni and starting Perla. How did, let's transition to that then. How did you meet Kurt and Nick? Like how did this come to be? Yeah, so I met Nick through Kurt because um, okay. uh, Kurt used to work for Nick as an intern, I believe, because um, Nick's a little bit older, like, you know, less than a decade, but several years older. Um, I knew Kurt through university. We we lived at a residential college together. So, he started a year after me. So, we we would have met in 2013, mm -hmm. long time ago. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of half stayed in touch for years until 2018 when he just started talking to me about his interest and his and Nick's mutual interest in trying to, you know, start a company to essentially help in the finance space, very broad vision of just, you know, kind of unscrewing mm. finance, which I'm sure everyone gets. Yeah. So, what what convinced you? Like, do you, do you remember any conversations that you had like when you first met Nick or something like this where you guys came together and you're like, this thing uh, could be better? At the start, you know, it was one of those cases where, you know, Kurt and Nick had an idea and I was like, let me help you out. I'll come and, you know, advise for a bit because um, I know how hard it is to start a company without a tech background, particularly like a tech company. Yeah. And then just, you know, a couple of months after talking to them, I was like, well, you know, I've kind of finished up with this. I'm bored. Let's, let's go. Let's like make this thing happen. But I think the motivator was, um, you know, the, especially the latter years of my childhood, family was family was quite poor and in a lot of debt. And same throughout uni, I never had quite a lot of money. So, one of those like families of like financial scarcity. So, I think there was always an impression on me for the longest time, you know, that 
you know, like money's everything, not in the sense of, you know, like glamour or whatever, but it's like, if you don't get that right, everything in life is like hard, right? Like relationships break down and like you're stressed and you can't do the things you enjoy. So I didn't think I realized it until I talked to them about it, but it's like, well, if there's one thing you want to help people get right, it's probably money. And you say, well, you know, mental health is very interesting to me, but it's like, if you can get on top of your finances, it makes dealing with mental health like much easier, right? Mm. Yeah, for sure. You know, so um, that just kind of got me interested in the broad idea, I think, which originally started with, um, can we make it easier to build a balanced portfolio? And it just kind of bled over months after we started it a bit more into that, you know, like the, the fundamental mission of Perla was always like, how can we make, you know, um, investing and saving accessible? How can we help people talk about money? Um, which mm. you can empathize with, right? For sure. Um, and that, I guess that got me hooked because that's just, it's like awesome. It's probably one of the most important things you can do, which is why I love the podcast as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I, I, I yeah, so much respect for that. Um, so in the early days, like you said, like after a few months, you'd finished up with the other thing. You're like, yeah, I'll give this a crack. Um, in the early days, how did you go about, I guess, researching the industry at, from like a technology perspective, how do you kind of scrape all that information and then think to yourself, well, these are the bits that matter. This is what I need to work on. This is the challenge here. And then have a vision that makes it scalable. I feel like with the regulatory environment, with the payments infrastructure, just the, the ASX, all these different like bodies and industries and regulations from a software development perspective adds complexity. Yeah, um, it was a new ground for me, right? Like I'd never worked in finance or anything legal. Um, you know, I was probably 20, 25, just basically being like, I'm about to go get a job at Google hmm. if, they, if they take me, you know what I mean? That was the space I was in. Um, one thing that shocked me the most was I expected building a finance app to be a lot more getting approvals. I didn't realize it was more just like, here's the rule book. You just have to follow it um, and someone will find you eventually if you don't. Mm. So, that was a little bit surprising because I was just waiting for someone to always like approve it. But it's like, no, you can you can just kind of like a good example is like direct debits. Like if I have your BSB and account number, um, you can just direct debit it, right? Mm. Um, but eventually you'll get caught and that's like the problem. So, that when people talk about, oh, it must be hard with the regulation, they talk about it as if like, you know, it's like some onerous process of years. Of, and it's like, no, like you can do a fair few things pretty easily you just have to make sure you do them right which is a bit stressful um but early on we started with the whole make it easy to rebalance a portfolio where i think things really picked up for us was when um we just kind of discovered the fire community right um financial independence retire early for those who haven't heard of it and that was like the first niche where we we were like we have a vision here mm. um and it took like a year it's like a year of floundering you know people have this idea that you just sit down and you're like oh we're just going to build this cool product and it's like no, no, it took like a year or maybe longer to figure out what the hell we were doing. And and that fire focus was great because we had a market of a few thousand people easily who were just like, no, I every week invest a lot of money into these ETFs and I want to not look at it or think about it. Um, a lot of our general customers are like a diluted version of that. Mm. Um, so, it gave us a great starting point that we could then like spring out of after that. What would, So, the fire community, is it just that they were passionate and you aligned philosophically? Auto Invest was a big feature for us early on. I think at the time we were the only company that 
you could do this like direct debit style of investing, um, pulling money every week or month or two months or something like that. Um, and that got us most of our early customers, right? Like um, you had your like automatic style investing, like your Rays and Spaceship. They've been doing direct debit investing for a long time, but you never had this with direct equity. So, if, you know, 2020, as far as I know, we were the only place you could debit $1,000 automatically from your account and put it straight into an ETF or a series of ETFs or something like that. What are some of the other challenges that, I guess, for the industry and that you think you can solve? It's a good question because there's a lot of challenges in the industry and sometimes we're inhibited by tech, you know. I mean, this is the interesting thing about finance, particularly coming from a software background is that there's still so much room to grow, you know. Mm. Like you look at some things like, say, video streaming and stuff and it's like, well, I mean, how much further can we go? You know, Netflix, Mm. YouTube, they stream videos at a high quality. It's like, great. But finance, um, here are some of the things that annoy us. It's like, well... Brokerage is like a flat fee to us. It's like, that's annoying because most people don't want to save up $500 at a time. An investor, right? They want to put, most people would probably want to put away money every day or money every week, right? Like every Mm. Friday evening or something like that. But that's prohibitive in the equities world because flat brokerage. Um, Whole units is kind of frustrating as well for people. And it's confusing. Someone's like, I want to buy a share in VAS. And it's like, okay, that's $82. It's like, can I buy $100 of VAS? Like, no. You know, and, and then they're like, but I have a hundred dollars aside psychologically, what am I going to do with the 18? So like the whole unit thing and the flat brokerage is hard, but they're hard problems to solve because the whole unit thing is like an ASIC regulate, like ASIC could probably change their mind on it. You know, I think the technology would exist to do fractional um, direct ownership with the ASX or something if they wanted to build it. And on the flat brokerage, that's just how we're charged, you know by our partners. So there's a lot of challenges that are sadly reliant on technology providers um, who are probably themselves reliant on technology providers. There's always like stacks to it, but most of what we try and focus on is is purely, you know, helping customers organize their life, like, you know, automate more mm-hmm. um, things that they would normally do manually or just building better experiences that align to what like a probably typical everyday investor wants to do, which is, you know, less BS and more straightforward investing. Mm. Do you think there's, um, so like I do, as you know, I deal with a bit of, uh, I deal with a lot of like financial planners and wealth managers mm-hmm. and they've had these platforms for a long time. Like when I say platforms, you know what I'm talking about. Like, like the um, the platforms that kind of manage heaps of different elements of finances for clients. And yet on our side of the fence, like on the everyday investing side of the fence, you have like, there's a bank account, then there's a broker, then there's super, and then there's all different things all over the place and people have to, there's a share registry, everyone has to manage everything. Is that itself a huge challenge as well? Because like, I feel like what you're trying to get at is not necessarily just, we just do this one thing and this one thing only. Yeah, is is the question that, you know, the challenges of um, there being too much for people, is that? Yeah, I guess like, like if you look at like the advised space, they can have an, a platform yep. that kind of manages their tax reporting, their superannuation contributions, their managed funds, their direct equity. You know, they can just do all that in one. Yeah. Yeah. For like the the mortals, or the rest of us, it's like there's not that. Yeah. No. There's there's too much going on. Um, I mean, that's before you even get to tax, right? Yeah. I mean, tax is like a whole other bucket hole. And, you know, we have that. So, like, take something like Perla. It's like, okay, you sign up to Perla, you invest in an ETF, you invest in a couple ETFs, and then you end up, um, you know, getting emails from share registries. And it's like, okay, great. Now it's tax time. Um, should I use this share site thing that my friends are telling me about? 
um, share sites asking for information from the share registries, right? It's like, yeah. it's such a bottomless pit. Um, we'd love to, tr- like, we've thought about doing things like, should we invest our time into screen scraping those share registries? So, you know, like we take your username and password, um, we store it, which is the problem of why we don't want to do it because it's just a liability. But we, we go and we log into them for you and we pull the data so you don't have to worry about them. Um, they're the ways we can try and solve it. Now, ideally, they'd provide us with better tech solutions, but a lot of these companies are either they don't have the motivation to change or I'm sure some of them do, but the bureaucracy or the, the overheads quite a lot. But yeah, it's absolutely a challenge for consumers. I think that's one of the reasons why managed fund products seem to do so well. You know, like a spaceship because they can just kind of package it all up in a little bundle. They don't have to worry about registries and tax. You know, they can just send out one statement at the end. Um, as opposed to our customers, you know, questions about cost spacing and everything else are just too complex. You know, mm-hmm. um, we've been trying something recently where uh, when a share registry emails you for something like you need to update your tax reporting, instead of it going to the customer, it comes to us and we like reroute it to the customer. Um, been trialing this and we just put like a Perla header at the top of the email and then the rest of the email. And it's interesting to kind of see that that's less scary for people because like they signed up to Perla. Um, and now they're getting emails from a company, you know, called Melbourne Securities or Link Market Services. And they're like, is this spam? I, you know, Optus is hacked. I don't know. You know, everyone's freaking out. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, that's actually one thing, one place I wanted to go with you, which is on security. Building a platform that involves money is a very sensitive thing for people, right? Yep. Um, yep. How do you, as an engineer, ensure that things like Optus don't happen? Yeah, and it's, that's a good question. And it's particularly tough in the startup environment too because you're always getting crunched. Mm. And, you know, security security is the highest priority for us, of course. But um, you have to make compromises somewhere, right? Like there are times we push out something to our front end and we know that it might be a little awkward or the, the loading button doesn't work. So, like the user is a bit unsure if they clicked it. Yeah. Um, their compromises we're happy to make in a broader agenda of progress. Yeah. Um, but some of the stability and security things you kind of can't compromise on. But the main thing is you just need to get good engineers thinking about the problem. Um, and a lot of your risk comes down to a very narrow space. So like for us, most of, most of the risky things we hold are bank details and um, bank history. You know, there's not a lot of risk we carry on the investing space because we have a broker that kind of we work through their API. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with customer funds, like we direct debit them, you know, we kind of built a lot of that system. Um, we do things like our spare change roundups, which, you know, rely on us actually seeing your bank history. For things like that, usually we're just very um, production access is only between myself and our senior engineer. So, mm-hmm. like, no one else can physically access that data, like, directly. Um, you know, we only ever access it on work laptops like this one, mm. hardware security, things like that, just like reasonable steps. And I think I'm very lucky too that, you know, coming out of that software engineering space, I have countless friends who, you know, they'll be like the head of DevOps at, um, you know, Canva. I've got friends in security at Google, Atlassian, like all over the place. And it's great because you can lean on them too and like ask them questions like, you know, who are thinking about doing this? And they'll be like, oh, it's a little bit extreme for like a startup, you know, mm. or they'll be like, yeah, no, we do this. This is like 
pretty standard practice. So this is how we separate stuff out. Or in our case, we're also chasing some certifications for infosec security stuff. So um, just getting the rubber stamp that we're like, you know, compliant. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's helpful too, because it just forces you to care about these little details that you might not otherwise care about, mm. you know, um, particularly when you're managing boring stuff like Amazon Web Services and um, they'll be like, you shouldn't have this instance of this thing running when you're not using it. And you're like, oh, it's fine, but sure, let's let's develop our practices even better. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so there's a lot of questions, obviously, as someone who just loves this stuff, but um, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit, about, little bit more about some of the unique challenges that you're excited about. So like things, tools, products, services that you're excited about, but not just what they are, but how you go about solving them. Yeah, um, I'd say that the big one of the biggest ones recently was like a big automation revamp where we were saying, let's figure out a way how to universalize, you know, roundups and regular deposits into like multiple products and stuff. And um, I have a fairly broad vision for this feature on our platform, which is that uh, everyone gets paid, hopefully. <laughs> um, then they spend their money on food, bills, yeah. other discretionary spend, and they've got a bunch left over. And um, we want to get to a point eventually where, where Pearl comes into the equation is from that bunch left over to the rest. So um, I'm trying to spend some time at the moment looking at a product where you can just give us your $500 a week and not view it necessarily as like, it's all just for like, I'm going to deposit it into Perla and then buy an ETF, but actually like, I'll give this to Perla and I'm going to tell Perla that I want to send, you know, half of it to my pile of ETFs and Perla will, you know, intelligently rotate through them when purchasing that. And I want to send the other half to like my savings account because, you know, savings rates are approaching three to 4%, right? Yeah. Um, and just get people in that mentality of like, you know, I can help manage my wealth building with Perla. We don't want to be a bank, right? Some people always think you're just like, oh, you're trying to be a bank, but it's like, no, we don't want to deal with transactions and all that other mess. It's like everything you have left over that you want to grow, let's help you take care of that. Um, mm -hmm. That's like one area. And most of that was just figuring out kind of system design of getting that right. How do we, how do we take money in and split it up? And how do we record that? Um, when you do a lot of system design, particularly I think in fintech, there's a lot of how do you build something where you can investigate things later. Um, like early on when we built systems really quickly, someone would be like, oh, um, I deposited money yesterday, but it didn't go through automatically and buy VAS. And we'd like look back in the database and we go, not too sure why we didn't record a timestamp of when this was received or, or something like that. So there's a lot of time spent in like, how, how do we leave like a great paper trail for ourselves? So that when things do go wrong, we're like, we can see exactly what happened. Mm. Um, Probably more interesting and recent things we're working on in the product space are around uh, things like goals and insights and rewards and community data. We're really trying to drive up the engagement. Mm -hmm. So how do we have it so that every time you log in, um, we want to give customers like a little insight into some information every time they log in. So it might say, you know, you've deposited 30% more than people your age this month. Good job. Or like... Um, congrats, you've made your 10th investment or, or things like this. So, and then we think, well, how we know the goal, that's pretty clear. We want to make customers smile. Mm. We want them to feel good logging and we want them to come back tomorrow. So then you ask yourselves interesting questions like, well, how often will they see this? Is it a new one every time? What if they log in 10 times a day? How, there's a limit to how many you have here, Yeah, you know? Um, so then we look at an approach. It's like, well, let's just come up with say 50 
of these stats and we'll display one a day and you think, well, should we display randomly? It's like, well, probably not. Let's display them for every person. That makes it more shareable for our customers too. So they see a cool stat, they can say to their friend, like log into Perl or check yours. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's where this one's heading right now. It's like, okay, every day someone logs in, everyone logs in, they get the same kind of stat. It'll be like that till the next day. Um, we have 50 of them, we rotate through them. So after like the day 51, we go back to the start. If it's a popular feature, then you know we start adding more on. Um, and then how we build that, we have to build it very carefully. So like right now, as of today, we've kind of pushed this feature out under like a hidden flag. So um, we have a, like a little secret dashboard in settings. If you look really closely where you can turn on all these like secret features. Yeah, I've turned all of them on. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so one of them will be going out overnight for that. Um, and we only have three stats right now. So it'll just rotate on like a three-day rolling basis. And we'll usually do something like that. We'll shoot it out to a bunch of customers. Some people just find it naturally too and share feedback. We rely on a lot of passive feedback because our customers are quite engaged. And yeah, if we see traction with it, we'll start investing more than that three and keep going off like that. So um, there's a lot more of it. Thought I'd go deeper on one of those in terms of like how we think about mm. something we want to solve and how we try and bring it to market. How about with um, investing for kids? Like that's something that's super popular in the RAS community. Um and everyone's looking for a better solution all the time to just think, why is this so hard? Well, what's the, you know, this, that, and the other? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's it's an exciting space because, you know, parents love investing for their kids, right? There's I think nothing... more than for themselves, to exactly, be honest. Exactly, yeah. Um, people are quite self selfless in a lot of ways. Um, but with the, so we've been working on this kids app, which we're hoping to release soon. And it's essentially a standalone app. The way to think about it is like a separate app that is just a different skin on Perla, like a Perla Lite, if anyone's ever used like Messenger Lite or something like that. It's yep. the same Messenger, same chats, um, but it's very geared towards parents. So it's an app designed for parents, not for kids, because if you design it for kids, you, you kind of narrow yourself down. Yep. Um, the way I describe it is it's like an app that is designed for parents on their parents' phone, knowing that most kids kind of use their parents' phone you know they like open it up and they like poke some things and they play with stuff yep so if you're three or four years old you know they can kind of play with it they're not going to break anything um if they're older they might check it now and again as they're a bit more engaged but fundamentally it's just parent downloads the app they like specify the kids that they have they're like well this is what they're saving for this is um one of a few different managed funds that they can invest in and the way we've set up the funds is that each kind of option in the fund is like a single ETF. So um, obviously, again, many customers are familiar with like Raise and Spaceship as products. Uh, we do a similar thing to them, except we don't have these complex portfolios. So for instance, we have like, a, I think we have like a tech option like Spaceship does, except it's not managed. It's actually just NDQ, the share, the ETF, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, a parent can choose something like that. So they'll choose like NDQ and then they can just put $10 in a week. They can put $10 in for all their kids a week and we'll distribute it. Another thing we've been looking at with that is like giving actually extra pay IDs for the kids to give to like family members. So you could actually like give a pay ID out to like, um, you know, uncles, aunties, grandparents, something like that. And they can pay in for Christmas and a little message and say like, you know, Merry Christmas or something like that. Um, so it's really just a package of a managed fund, spaceship raise style kind of thing, um, except super simple and targeted for kids. And one of the things we're trying to focus on is actually letting that managed fund be opened up beneficially for the child, right? Because I do believe there's products out there like Spriggy where you can actually invest for kids, but as far as I know, um, 
Spriggy is like for an individual, for an adult. Mm. Um, so it's just like an adult investing account, but it's like positioned as for children. Uh, whereas we're trying to go down the route of the, the child actually owns this money. Or more specifically, we're trying to give a choice because like there are lots of parents out there who want to invest for their kid for a couple of reasons. One is like philosophically, like if it's their money, it should be their money. And then secondly, if you invest for them ben- beneficially, you know, when they turn 18, um, you can give them the money without triggering a tax event, right? Mm. Um, but we also know there are parents out there uh, and my, my mom would have been like this who are just like, I want to invest for my kid, but like I'm financially a little bit scared and like life's scary. Anything could happen. Like I could lose my job. I don't want to lose my job. And then we have to, we have to move out because I can't touch like this, the $10,000 I've invested for my kid and then I'll screw my kid's life Mm. up. Um, And so, you know, we're trying to let them have both options. So that's kind of up to them whether they want to invest in their name legally or in their kid's name legally, but it's the same experience. That's, um, I feel like that's a huge, uh, not, it's not a problem, but it's just like a huge challenge and it's a really positive challenge to solve. Um, we, want to, we, want to be, we want to be positive with it. And again, because we're a startup, we try and build everything quite lean, which sucks sometimes because we had this really exciting idea that we were like, um, you're probably familiar with Tamagotchis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and my sister had them a lot. I never had one, but I was, I was witness to it quite extensively. And um, remember you had to feed it. Yeah. So we were Mine like, always died. Yeah, exactly. So we, we thought a lot about maybe we should build this app with like, um, you know, I think it was called Fido the Finance Dog, where like you had to <laughs> you had to feed Fido like five dollars a week, and if you didn't feed him five dollars a week, he died, kind of thing. So you know, like encouraging kids, like you have to feed the dog, and you know, like how's the pet healthy? Um, then we were like, it's too much effort for day one, and we were also like, I don't know at what point that becomes a problem <laughs> for like if <laughs> if the dog dies yes if the dog dies and then the kid's sad and then someone was compelled to like put money in you know how to, uh, finance can be scary with some of that stuff um so that's like a future hope one day yeah um what was the name of the budget tracking app that closed down recently uh pocketbook i don't know if you told me this nick told me this or someone else told me this Maybe it was an email. I don't even know how I figured this out. But I heard that when that closed down, it just so happened that you weren't happened to be working on something like this. Yeah, a few things happened um, back in July, August, which were our trading volume went down. People are scared to invest, naturally. Mm. Um, interest rates went up, which is correlated. People were starting to save more money and there was more conversations about spending. I'm not sure if you noticed this year at all, people, you know, tightening their wallets. So, oh, you know, definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, and we also had just moved to open banking, which was really interesting for us because prior to like March or somewhere in that period, if you were to connect your bank account on Perla, it was using the old screen scraping, yep. which was true for everyone else. Um, but when we moved to open banking, we thought this is quite interesting because we can actually get everyone on this now. We would love to force all customers to have to connect their bank account because it's better for them. We can provide an experience that helps us. Um, de-risk fraud, which means that we don't have to be as careful with customers who are good customers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just don't want to push that if it's screen scraping because you're kind of putting people between a rock and a hard place. But with open banking, we were like, well, now we can get tons of this data from our customers. And uh, that was another factor. And then when Pocketbook closed, we thought, well, God, we've already got all these people's bank account connections. We're already scraping a bunch of them for our Roundup tool. Um, people are quite spending conscious in general uh you know 
let's really sink our teeth in and try and build something in that space. Like an actual spending tracker is probably the best summary description of it. Formerly you call it like a personal money manager or something like that. Um, but yeah, we were definitely looking to kind of create something like Frollo or Pocketbook. Um, and we still are working on that at the moment. Mm. Um, it's fun. Yeah. Um, so here's a question, like a lot of people hearing this and probably like I know a lot of software engineers listen to the show. Um, you've got like all these things you're working on and we'll get to the team in a minute, but how do you decide what is worthwhile and what is not? Um, it's a lot of Nick and I probably figuring out what's worthwhile or not. I mean, generally I'd say that, you know, Nick, our CEO, he will, he's got an exceptional business mind and he knows how to kind of get a sense of what's important. You know, like the kids app is all him in the sense of like, you know, well, there's clearly a market problem here. Um, it's too hard to invest for your kids. Uh, you know, he talks to people like you and other, he, he'll understand how successful it may or may not be. And we won't get everything right, but he'll have a fairly good idea. Um, I usually work on with him to kind of figure out, you know, what are the 10 or 12 things that we care about right now? So it might be like the kids app and the, the insight stuff and all those other engagement tools. And then maybe some of the spending tracker, um, and then from there, where I probably take it over more myself is figuring out how we do all those things at once. Um, cause we do have a team of like nine ish engineers and there's like a, it's a very subtle balance because one of the problems is, you know, it's like, you know, that phrase, it's like, you can't have like, what is it? It's like nine women can't have a baby in a month. Yeah. Or, the old Warren Buffett thing. Yeah. You can't get nine women pregnant and have a baby in one month. Yeah, exactly. And it's a bit like that with software development sometimes because, you know, people get blocked. They get, they run into bugs in their own space. They get, you know, like writing code's hard, mm. right? It ties you out. So they get fatigued on that. And then they might get blocked on like, I don't know what copy should be there, or maybe it's ready to be released, but customers haven't given feedback yet. Or maybe it's something to do with open banking or another partnership where the API we're using just is broken and we have to wait two days for the team in the Ukraine to get back to us or wherever they're based. Cause you know, there's a few like lines of communication and um, there's like an inherent inefficiency to getting stuff done and you can only work so quick. So we try and we try and generally say, well, here are the broad priorities. Here are the things that matter most, but we're going to give you like each engineer in the team generally is working on like two or three initiatives at the same time. Um, and that's, that's how they'll work. So like, for instance, Sabrina, um, one of the loveliest people in our company, she's pretty much running a kid's app and she'll work on that as much as she possibly can until she can't. And then she'll be working on like kind of set two, thing two and three. Um, hmm. and therefore we run a lot of stuff in parallel, you know, and like different engineers, we don't have like a big team or working on the same stuff. We'll typically have like, you know, six or seven people say working on like two or three things each. Um, and my job mostly is actually just helping people get the compromise, right? So to that insights example, I said before, it's like, well, a big, like a, a, a NAB could probably do some project like that. They, they'd spend a month planning it. They get it all right. They build it all out. They test it all at once and they ship it, you know, kind of thing. Um, whereas most of my job is honestly just trying to help figure out, you know, what's that, what's that minimum step forward that we have to do to keep going. And like feel, cause if we get things into production quicker, customers test it for us, mm. you know, cause they're curious and, um, we know when we can push things in that <clears throat> if they break, it's not really 
you know, it's just you, you click on the share button and it doesn't work. It's like no one no one's losing money or anything. We get that stuff right. So um, it's mostly just navigating that out. And, and that's that's how we, we prioritize with Nick. And then I work with the team to figure out how we can just move quickly because everything's like a compromise and, and speed's quite important for us. Is most of the team, most of the team are engineers then? Yeah, so we've got, <clears throat> got like 20 people, three customer service, a product manager, a designer, um, Thomas, our content and community manager. I can't remember what his exact title is. He just does a lot of important stuff. <laughs> um, this way, we've got a recent head of marketing. Um, we have a commercial officer now who kind of does like half HR, half commercial stuff. And then like nine engineers, I think. So, yeah, nearly half the company. Yeah, it's like quite a lot. And they're all quite young. Um, their ages, I, I think, are... I think it's like it's like 21, 24, 24, 25, 25, 27, 33. I'm 29. Um, I probably missed someone there, but it's all like approximately. They're all quite young. They're all quite like a few years out of university. Um, How do you, so software engineering at the moment is obviously a very expensive profession. Mm. Even for young people, it's incredibly well paid. Yes. It's a lot of jobs. It's a very privileged sector. Yeah. Yes. Um, a few questions is how do you attract talent and then B, how do you make sure you're getting the right person? Like what tests would you do? What, you know, do you do anything that's like interesting for your profession in the hiring process or how do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, software salaries are crazy. Like we pay our junior people somewhere between 90 and a hundred thousand a year. Um, I have a friend that just got a, they're like 20, job offer at Google, it's like 160,000. Um, so it's very hard to like attract talent just for in a monetary sense. Most of the people we've uh, hired have been out of personal networks. I've taught at the university for a long time. I still lecture there. So, um, you know, if a student has studied computer science at UNSW since 2019, they pretty much had to be taught by me at some point. Um, that's very helpful just in terms of like the immediate meeting people, mm. but then also like a branding element. Um, of just, you know, people talk about it and it's like more legitimate because it's hard to get traction. Because the, the other thing is big tech companies kind of like crush small companies because they have so much money and mm. PR, you know, and they, you should like students are crazy. They're like, if I don't get a job at Canva or Google or Atlassian, like what even am I? Because that's like what people are talking about. There's like maybe 10 companies that everyone wants to work for, which sucks because the, the, the space is huge. Yeah. There's so much cool work everywhere. Um, but mostly it's just pulling them out of personal networks. Um, in terms of interviewing, most of the time we try and do a bit of like a programming trial. We just give them, we usually get them to sign an NDA. We give them access to our um, code base and we ask them to do a fairly straightforward task that relies on them to get a little bit of everything right. Um, and we just let them go. And we like, if you have questions, ask us, take a week, take two weeks. You can kind of tell by, you know, how long they take, how they do it, the kinds of questions they ask. Um, and all we really look for is we look for smart people, like smart mode. Like if, if you're smart and you're hungry, that's like, it's like amazing for us, you know, because you will get great things out of you. It's a bonus if you already know a lot of what you need to know. And that's kind of an important thing in a startup because, you know, we don't have that ability to kind of bleed in turn losses mm. um, and then be like, oh, it'll pay off in a year. You know, I think it's like, I remember someone reported once, it was like, it takes a tech company, like typically two years to like pay off an investment into it's probably some BS stat, but it makes sense, right? Um, <laughs> but techs like that in general, like when I interviewed at Microsoft, when I interned there for three months, 
I did uh, four one-hour interviews back to back just to like get it in. And it was like basically like sit down in a room with a whiteboard and like we're going to examine you. Here's a question. Like give us an answer. Tech's always been a bit like that. Very practical minded. They, you know, um, less less um, crap. So we kind of do a similar thing. But you can't really, I don't think you can learn a lot in an hour with someone in an isolated thing. Um, but you do that. You have to do that at scale because it's the only way you can interview. You can't do programming practice questions yeah give you two weeks and we'll give 500 people this yeah exactly it's (laughs) it's not feasible but that's that's how we like to do it at the moment and it kind of makes our lives easier Mm. if you were starting perlin today yep um what would you do differently so probably spend more time on mobile um it's the desktop mobile question is so tricky you know like we have a lot of customers that love that we have a desktop app because mm. finance and particularly investing, people still like to click on their laptop, you know. Sometimes they'll just be lying in bed. They don't want to pull out their phone and feel cramped about what's sometimes a very complicated topic. Um, but we definitely kind of sat on desktop too long. We've recently started releasing like an actual native mobile app. We've always had a mobile app, but it's essentially been a web wrapper. Yep. Um, and we do that for efficiency. A lot of companies do that. But we've actually bitten the bullet now and said, um, we've actually done something really interesting with the mobile app, which is that, you kind of have this choice when you build a mobile app that's like a web wrapper just packaged on the app store or you build it in like a tool like react native or flutter or something where um you build it in one code base and it gets deployed to all the stores or you've got like your ios and android like native apps which like banks tend to do because you get like a high degree of control that middle one's really popular because it's so easy and you get these amazing apps because that middle one react native it actually builds into the right. underlying native apps, whereas um, like a web wrap is still just a website, which is why it always feels a little janky. Like if anyone's used the Perler app, it's like, it doesn't feel like spaceship, you yeah, know, right. it's not quite the same. So um, what we've started doing is we've actually gone and created a proper React Native app. Um, we built our new our dashboard fully in React Native. So the dashboard you see on the website and the dashboard you see in the app are actually like coded separately. They're like separate code, right. which is why people don't do it because it's painful. Yeah. You got to update everything twice. twice. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's ways around it, but you might miss something and then, you know, you double your surface area. But we packaged it in a way where, um, if you imagine the Perler app is like 20 different pages, um, we kind of have them so you can like slot one in and out. So it's like on Perler right now, the dashboard is a native item and the rest is a website. And we're going to slowly be pulling out one website page at a time and replacing it with like a native app. So just over a 12 month period. Um, we can kind of improve that app and give a better experience, which is much better too because the alternative is you work on this massive app for months yeah, and then you have to test it really thoroughly because you've got some big launch coming up. Um, but we've just tried to take that more piecemeal approach. Mm. I think I got sidetracked there on it. No, no, no. So who else would be... So would there be changes that you would have made? So that's from a tech perspective, mm. like mobile before desktop. Is there anything else you would have done differently with the team or the way you set up the business? Um, broadly, I think because it was very organic, I think we did a good job. Sometimes I wish we invested into content and community a bit more and like education early, early on mm-hmm. um, because that's kind of where you get your really sticky customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wish we ran more events. COVID kind of killed that a bit. Like yeah. we ran a couple of events where I think we ran this one in 2019 where we we did the premiere of Playing With Fire. It's like a US documentary. Okay. And, um, we just rented it in a lecture theater and we had like 300 people turn up. This is like a year before we even had a product. Huh, um, cool. 
So I wish we did more stuff like that because that that was fun and that's kind of where you get your engaged customers. And engaged customers are just, they're worth their weight in gold. They make your life easier. Um, so that one's definitely pretty massive. I think that I probably wish we might've jumped into the US stocks a little earlier because US stocks work well with micro investing because you can buy like, you know, $10 yeah. of S&P 500. Um, and most Australians seem to not like investing in US stocks directly too much. Um, but that would have made life easier for a whole bunch of customers, I think, particularly those who are like, I don't have $600 to save up. Mm. Um, that's probably a couple of the main ones. How about, um, let's think about it differently. What's one thing that you are really proud of with Perla? I can be a very ne negative person in my own head, so I have to think very hard about it. Um, <laughs> We all are. Very, yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all very hard on ourselves, aren't we? Um, the team is so... Probably the craziest thing is that we have more women signed up to the platform than men, just in a, in a legal gender sense, because that's the main... That's the data we get with our identity checks. Um, and that's always been so interesting because, you know, like in the finance space, that's hard to find, particularly very hard like to a find. broking platform. And our team is... Um, I have, I always have very transient feelings about quotas. I've had years of my life where I've been more grumpy about them and years where I've been very you know, <laughs> affirmative action all over the place. But, um, you know, we have a team that's about half women. We have a team that half have young kids. Um, probably half of them have, you know, a fairly non-trivial ethnic background. Um, and the other half of like me, very boring. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it's been incredible seeing that, um, just balance of, of culture and personality exist. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm probably mainly just proud of that because it's like, it. I think it demonstrates that you found a crowd of probably pretty nice people building a nice platform that seemed to get along, right? Um, and we, the weird thing is we never really set out to actually get an engagement from women like that. We mainly set out more like, you know, kind of think of Atlassian slogans and stuff. It's like, you know, don't be a bad person, <laughs> yes, right? Yeah. And, um, that's that's just been great because like you know we were just like let's just not make this alienating let's not use big words let's not make things harder than they need to be um let's keep things simple and yeah it's just really nice to know that you've kind of touched into everyday people because that's kind of you know that's the end goal of Perla, right like i don't want to be we don't want to be the one of those like trading companies where you've got like a hundred thousand users but they're all like you know um cashed up young boys yeah trying to make a quick buck it's like you know if we see like if you know if we see like single mums from you know i was gonna say a random regional town but you know some orange bathus ballina whatever right yeah and they're like oh i got into investing and i've you know been saving 100 bucks and you know it's got me engaged with my own finances and like over a 20-year period that was the starting point where you know they kind of made the difference between having some wealth when they're older or not like that's that'd be the most amazing thing and we're seeing the early stages i guess of that engagement now that's so great yeah it's brilliant um and I think I said this at the Perla event earlier this year, like even just the subtle things, a lot of people probably, aren't, unless they're in positions like you or I, they probably don't notice this. But um, even one thing that caught me really early on, like I was like, what's this Perla thing? You know? um, and I checked it out. And I'm like, huh, the chart for this, I think it was Telstra at the time, was like 10-year chart. And I was like, not many brokers or platforms show you a 10-year chart, right? And it's just the it's a little psychological thing to try and augment your view to like, this is long-term investing. 
and it's it's against the traditional concept of what is brokerage and platforms and those things aren't lost on me and i think those are the things over the long term you'll be proud of because you'll see the the fruits of that maybe not straight away maybe people yeah. will be like i don't want to see the 10 year chart give me the daily chart you know um it's but, a long bet like yeah. because um you know we're a commission like we make most of our money off commission yeah so the reason that a lot of companies will give you intraday charts and everything is because they're trying to motivate you to click that button more because they make money on the buys and the sells right mm. so you know we've kind of taken a product approach that's somewhat antithetical to like the short-term business model um we don't make a lot of money per customer uh because a typical customer comes in and invests I think once every two months or, or something like that or twice a year i can't remember the exact number it's not a lot of revenue but um we're banking on a business model that works for for lack of a better phrase like every australian mm. you know um because you do max out the number of people that want to trade and want to like look at those charts there's only so many of them um so if we can if we can actually hit scale and get this product like in the hands of as many people as possible then just from a, a financial sense the business will keep thriving um you know we're we're not like a, a tech comp a, you know tech bro company that can survive with like 30 40,000 customers mm. um just based on commissions and the making killings and probably losing a lot of life savings um mm. so yeah it's definitely very different the way we have to build the product or the way we want to build the product yeah for sure um we've got a couple more questions for you mate the the first one is this doesn't have to be a finance brand or whatever but what are some of the companies that you look at um from someone who's built something really impressive and you think, wow, that's really impressive. I really like what they've done there. Um, are there things that jump out to you? Yeah, um, I mean, on a on a more nerdy product, um, I'm not sure if you guys have used it. There's a product I've always loved called Airtable. Yeah, um, I love Airtable. And I remember just using it. Slack was a bit like that in the early days. I remember just using it and being like, damn, okay, this um, this is it yeah yeah <laughs> you know yeah. like okay this solves all and every time there was something else i wanted to do with it um I, it just worked yeah um i was like oh wow cool this is like an easy way to store data It'd be cool if oh wow i can make a form for it I'm like oh yeah it's like oh they have an api for it yeah i'm like oh i can automate this like we, we built our reimbursement system in Airtable. it took like 10 minutes <laughs> so you just like upload your reimbursements gets approved by a manager it's all stored somewhere it's just like an incredibly straightforward product but i appreciate that that's it's again a very techy, yeah, it is you know, tech scene product. Yeah, um, Notion is probably another one that I thought was like yeah, crazy right good. Here. Yeah. Um, I've been using Confluence for like ten years, and I never quite made it onto Notion like fully. Yeah, because um, I was so caught in Confluence. But I have to credit Notion for making Confluence fix its crap. <laughs> um, if anyone's ever used Confluence for like a long time it only really got good as far yeah. as i'm concerned like a year or two ago <laughs> which i think was when notion just started like sucking people off them yeah because it used to be really slow um i just love a good product that solves the problem and makes sense you know um i always say like um you know to-do list i've never found a to-do list app mm. that's ever worked right yeah and it's so interesting to me that you know it's just there's never been a slack for to-do list has there yeah. it's just like punch through everything um so anytime someone could just like punch through a space i I absolutely love it, but yeah. Maybe coming soon, <laughs> Hayden's <laughs> to-do list. Yeah, that's it. If I can crack it one day, probably not. <laughs> um, which products, this has been more controversial, mate. Um, which companies, platforms, products, et cetera, um, do you think, oh, that, that is not, like I, can't, I don't know how it got here. Like how did it get to this point? 
Um, it's so it's so widely adopted, but it's just not good. <laughs> Some Atlassian products. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love Scott and Mike, you know, co-founders of Atlassian, like two of my favorite people in the world. But I'm always shocked how how popular Jira is. Jira is like right. task tracking software. Um, and everyone seems to complain about it. <laughs> there was like a thing I remember. It was like, um, I feel bad bagging out on it because I love those guys. But it's like, there was like a riots outside of Atlassian the other day or something about them supporting um, Russia, you know, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, um, the top comment was like upvoted on Reddit. It was like, surely Atlassian can't be supporting Russia. They can barely even support Jira. <laughs> and I was just like, there's like such a, such a frustration on the internet. I'm amazed how popular their products are given that some people complain about them a lot, but I, I do think they've gotten a lot better. But again, that's a very, it's a very techie answer. Unlike the investing sense, I'm still shocked that the share registries exist. Yeah. Like some of the worst products you can use. It's very confusing. Like even I find them confusing. It's like my full-time job essentially. Mm. Um, but they, uh, yeah, that's interesting because like I was chatting to the, some venture capitalists uh, earlier this week and they were saying like, I know everyone says like Bitcoin fixes this or solves this, but um, like this is one of the things where there's like a probably a case to be made for like a Web3 application to help with this type of thing. Um, and so maybe their time one day will come to an end and what we know today will be different, maybe. Probably. I mean, tech moves ferociously fast. Um, yeah. Like even I think about like open banking now, real-time payments, um, we're going to have pretty much everyone's going to be on real-time direct debits in like um, probably a year, the way things are going. There's so much exciting, like I think, innovation in the finance space, um, just very far behind, right? Mm. And then you also forget how amazing Australia is. Um, like we have a crazy amount of tech here when you compare it to other countries, you know, maybe not the UK or some parts of the US, but uh, I always forget how far ahead we are, which scares the hell out of me. Mm. You know, when you go to like Germany or something and they're like, they, everyone still goes into banks to do everything. Yeah. Um, it's exciting though. Yeah, it is exciting. It's it's an exciting space to be in because you feel like there's still so much to go. Mm. Um, but it's so slow too. Someone was telling me the person who like did the OSCO pay ID real time stuff, they like started that in like 1999 was like when they first like got... Oh, wow. Because, you know, you got to plan it for years and then you got to get the banks on and then um, they all have to commit to it for it to work. That's the other problem with banking, right? If the banks like you have to force every bank to do it. Yeah. And then most of them don't. And we see that with pay too. So pay two, I'm pretty sure like July one, I think it was July one originally. Every bank was meant to have a system where you could do real time direct debit. So what that means is like Perla could through the bank um, say, I want to pull thousand dollars from your account every month. Um, and without ever knowing your bank details, well, maybe not yet, but like, you know, we connect to the bank just like how you do with uh, open banking now. Um, but like banks were just slow and a bunch weren't working and they just get fined, but they don't care. I mean, yeah. they probably care, but like you know, the fine is not materially painful to them. So, you know, they'll just pay it out for a year or as their teams figure things out. Yeah. Um, so it's slow, but it's it's inevitable, which is exciting. Yeah. And you're, you're at the pointy end of that, mate, which is really cool. So, yeah, lots of fun. Yeah. Um, do you have any job openings if anyone's listening and they're like, uh, Perla? I, this is a question you were asked on your product roadmap not long ago. Yeah. Um, Send me an email. <laughs> you know, Nick's very good at kind of reminding me how businesses work because, again, I'm, I'm like a tech person converted into a business owner. Yeah. Um, so, it's always still learning for me. But um we will hire anyone if we think there's value in it, right? Mm. Um, 
Sometimes there's not value because of their background specific to Perla. Sometimes they're really smart people who are just the wrong fit for Perla. Sometimes there are incredible people who we just have enough of, yep. you know, like we have enough junior engineers at the moment. Yep. Um, junior engineers are great because they're, they're cheaper and they're motivated, but the overhead of managing them is higher. Um, but we just love people reaching out. There's always like, um, we had a customer, we had not, a, yeah, we had a customer reach out and tell us how much they love us and how much they love to work for us one day. And they just gone and built like their own little kind of portfolio tracker tool. And we just jumped on a call and they wanted to show us the tool. Um, hmm. And the engagement's great. So generally, if there are people who love Pearl. I mean, some of our employees are ex-customers as well. Like um, Vinit, he's on our customer service. If you call customer service, you'll have a one in three chance of him answering. But <laughs> he used to be a customer and he just reached out and was like, I saw you guys had a job opening in customer service. I'd love to work for you. Um, it's actually so great. Sorry, like the tangent, but... Um, like our customer service team is, I think, probably very reflective of some of the stuff I'm proud of. Like we have Kathy who leads it and she's like an ex-Qantas flight attendant who is looking to change careers. Like she'd been there for like 14 years, 2008, I think. Um, came into Perla, now like looks after customer service. Vinit um, is from a small town in Victoria called Echuca. Mm -hmm. um, used to work, um, I think he was a cook, something in kitchens. He worked, worked in hospitality in the back. Um, that, that, and he was just looking to make a transition into tech and had a passion of tech, um, you know, and sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's just really nice and it plays with the customers so well too, because, you know, they're really empathetic because most people in our company, like 90% of them had virtually no engagement with person. Like they're pretty much like your listeners in the mm. sense, you know, they're all like wannabes, not in the negative sense of the word, been like that, you know. I want to be better. I want to like learn mm. more and I'm motivated to, and I don't know a lot just yet. I'm on a journey. Um, and that just plays out. Mm. That plays out with our customers quite well. Cause the way they care about customers or the way they think about what they need and what they need for support is like, it all just kind of naturally works if you get the right people. Mm. But yeah, if, if people can reach out <laughs> is the point. Yeah, no, I love it, mate. Your passion is clear. Um, this is a really good chat. Just hearing like even back to when you could save, a friend uh, 30 minutes a day you know from those things to now doing that at scale with tens of thousands of people it's um, very exciting yeah it's super exciting stuff so i'm really keen to see where you, you go from here and i just yeah i really appreciate you you taking the time out to join me today no anytime thanks Alan. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.